Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 26. In the last episode, I continued working my way through the Philistines of the Old Testament, wrapping up when the Israelites, led by King Saul, defeated the Philistines somewhere between Michmash and Beth-Avon. This chronicle is found in 1 Samuel chapter 14. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up towards the end of that chapter and continuing the ongoing conflict between the Israelites and the less-than-neighborly Philistines. I realize that I'm still officially covering the book of Deuteronomy, and many of the mentions of the Philistines occur much later, so I had a decision to make cover them partially, and pick it up again later, or do it all now. A choice with no perfect answer. Obviously, I chose to cover their history all now. At least when I get to that part of the Old Testament narrative, it'll go much quicker. And with that, let's get started. I wrapped up the last episode covering Saul's oath of not eating until he was avenged, and how that oath translated to all of his troops. His son Jonathan knew nothing of what his kingly dad swore, so he had himself some honey. After the battle, the troops were so ravenous they ate in a sinful manner, consuming meat with blood, and failing to adhere to the letter of the Old Testament dietary restrictions. As part of his penance, King Saul built his first altar to God. It's at this point that I'll pick up in the text. Soon after, Saul formulates a plan to attack the Philistines at night. The soldiers find the plan agreeable. Then a priest speaks up, telling Saul he ought to pray for guidance first. So he does, asking God if he should attack. God is silent, providing no answer to the very direct query. Saul is taken aback at God's silence, thinking the reason God hasn't answered his question is because someone in his ranks has sinned that day. He then tells the army that whenever he finds out who sinned, they will be put to death, even if it's his son Jonathan. I can only imagine the prince's reaction upon learning this. As you might suspect, no one fessed up, and no one narked on their fellow soldier. Saul then tells Jonathan to stand beside him, and when he does, the father and son separate themselves from the rest of the army. He then prays again this time saying, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant today? If this guilt is in me or in my son Jonathan, O God of Israel, give Urim, but if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim. And I'm going to pause here for a second. Recall that in chapter 3 of the podcast, episodes 86 and 87, I covered the priestly vestments, affixed on the priestly breastplates were many stones, including the Urim and Thummim. These two stones are generally associated with divination, with biblical researchers agreeing they were used by the high priest to answer a question or reveal the will of God. As was the case in this instance, though it wasn't the high priest, but the king himself asking the question. And the stones indicated that the sinner was on the king's side of the line in the sand. Though the text isn't explicit, it does imply that the priests interpreted the stones to indicate the guilty party. 
Saul then asked again who it was, either himself or his son, and the stones indicated Jonathan was guilty. Then Saul asked what he had done. Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. Think about that for a second. He was willing to die for doing something he didn't know was a sin at the time. His father was unforgiving, telling his son he will die for the sin. Then the people intervened, telling the king, Shall Jonathan die, who has accomplished this great victory in Israel? Meaning a victory over the Philistines. They convinced Saul that Jonathan was working on behalf of God, and his life should be spared. After this, King Saul had his forces withdraw from the battlefield, and the Philistines marched back to their homes. At this point in 1 Samuel, the narrative steps back and takes a break, giving a very broad overview of all the peoples King Saul fought, enemies on every side, Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. Though given what we're told concerning his fights with the Philistines, that routing seems to be a bit figurative. He also struck down the Amalekites, allowing their king to live. He's said to have rescued Israel out of the hands of those who plundered it. It then circles back to the Philistines, recounting there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong or valiant warrior, he took them into his service. No mention if the soldier volunteered or was compelled. Maybe voluntold. We then get a break in the story while the narrative moves forward. The young David is anointed by Saul as the next king. David plays his lyre in the king's court. All of this providing the necessary background for what's to come next another battle with the Philistines, this one of the most legendary sort. And, like I've been doing with these longish biblical narratives, I'll paraphrase it, if only to be more concise, to correct tenses, and for clarity. Beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 17. The Philistines gathered their armies for battle at Soko. This was in the territory allotted to Judah. They encamped between Soko and Azekah. The location of Soko is a bit unclear, as there were two ancient towns that bore the name, both in the same relative area. The one closer to Azekah is generally regarded as the one in the text, for obvious reasons. Though, if the Philistines split their forces, which was unlikely as the tactic wasn't mentioned, but if they did, it could have been the other location. As for Azekah, that place is more certain. About 16 miles, 26 kilometers northwest of Hebron, King Saul assembled the Israelite army and encamped nearby, in the Ella Valley. This is a long, relatively shallow valley southwest of Jerusalem, west of the Dead Sea, and northeast of Gaza. As you would suspect, this placed it about on the boundary between Philistia and Judah, the perfect place for a battle between the two constant enemies. Like was necessary in ancient warfare, the armies who were about to fight were essentially within sight of each other. The narrative continues. 
the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and the Israelites stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. Then the reason the story is so well known. Out of the Philistine camp came a champion warrior we all know as Goliath. He was from Gath, one of the five cities of the Philistine Pentapolis. I mentioned that city in the last episode as one of the places where the Philistines took the ark after they captured it from Israel. Remember that after the city took the ark, the people living there were inflicted with some sort of tumor. As for Goliath of Gath, he's said to have stood some six cubits and a span high. There's a whole bunch of scholarship on how tall he really was. Just know that a cubit was about 18 inches, 44 centimeters, and a span was about the distance measured by a human hand, from the tip of the thumb to the tip of the little finger. In ancient times, a span was considered to be half a cubit. This would make Goliath six and a half cubits tall, to us nine feet nine inches, just a hair under three meters. At least according to the Masoretic text, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, and Josephus all list four cubits in a span, six feet nine inches, just over two meters. All three versions of the Bible I use for the podcast use the nine foot plus measurement of six and a half cubits, though the New Revised Standard does footnote that it could be four and a half cubits. Either way, he was exceptionally tall. For comparison, the youthful David was, of course, much shorter, but how much shorter? Well, he may have been young enough that he hadn't stopped growing, and his height is never recorded in the Bible. We are told in 1 Samuel 9 that King Saul was possibly the tallest man in Israel, standing head and shoulders above everyone else, which doesn't really help either. About the only comparison is that Egyptian records from the era seem to indicate that the average Egyptian male was about 5 feet 5 inches, 163 centimeters tall. Even with the shorter height for Goliath, he still towered above everyone else. Besides being very tall, he was also very well armored. His helmet was made of bronze, once again pointing out that even though the Philistines possessed a seeming monopoly on iron, they still used the earlier technology of bronze. Over his body, he wore what's said to be a coat of mail, in my mind, I imagine this to be similar to chainmail, but when researching the subject, I found that the earliest chainmail dates to several hundred years later, around the 3rd century BC. So I had to dig further, as it's unlikely the Philistines were using chainmail. In this case, I'm going to lean on the NIV, which instead of the word mail, interprets the ancient Hebrew manuscript to a more likely technology of the time, scale armor. And scale armor is like what it sounds like, reptile scales. It was an early form of armor consisting of many individual small metal or leather pieces of various shapes attached to each other and then attached to a backing of cloth or leather in overlapping rows. And it would have been known and available to the Philistines as the earliest find of such armor is in an Egyptian tomb dating to the reign of Amenhotep II, so the 15th century BC, several hundred years before Saul and David faced the Philistines. 
Knowing that, it would have been probable that the Israelites possessed similar suits of armor. Being as large as he was, Goliath's armor was also extraordinarily large and heavy, tipping the scales at some 5,000 shekels of bronze, so 126 pounds, 56 kilograms, or if you're really English, 9 stone. On his legs, he wore bronze armor called greaves. These covered his legs from just above the knee, over the shin, and down to the top of his foot. He also carried a bronze javelin, a spear, slung between his shoulders. Apparently, the bronze spear had an iron tip, owing once again to the Philistines' command over that technology. This certainly seemed particularly troubling to the assembled Israelites. Either the entire spear, or just the business end of it, the tip, weighed 15 pounds, almost 7 kilos. Given how outsized everything else was, I'm assuming that was the weight of the spear tip. He also had a shield of unknown size and material, but he didn't carry that himself. It was instead borne by another soldier, known quite naturally as his shield-bearer, who marched in front of him. Being of such great stature, he also seemed to have an outsized ego, given how he taunted the Israelites. He stood in front of the Philistine army, with presumably only his shield-bearer closer to the Israelites than he was. When he was there, he shouted at the Israelites, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Today I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. I'm going to pause here for a second and contemplate the confusing relationship between the Israelites and Philistines. Earlier, in the book of Judges, we're told the Israelites were subservient to the Philistines. The Philistines captured the ark, then gave it back. Saul and the army seem to win several battles against them, though they are never roundly defeated, always withdrawing to their homelands. At this moment in time, when Goliath comes forth, his taunt implies that one did not rule over the other, and that the two nations had been battling for supremacy over the other for some time. And for Goliath to make such a challenge, it either indicated he was sure of his victory, or they were all tired, or they weren't going to live up to their word. Given his ego, I'll go with the former, and he knew even the tallest Israelite, maybe King Saul, couldn't stand up to him. In that regard, the part concerning Saul, he was right. In the next part of the narrative, we see that the tall King Saul, along with all the Israelite army, were not only dismayed, but were also very afraid of the giant and the army standing behind him. We're next introduced to David. Well, in reality, reintroduced. I'll skip that part until I get to the history in and around the books of King Saul. Circling back to Goliath, in the battle that has yet to be, we're told that the two armies stared each other down for 40 days, maybe longer, as Goliath's taunts were for 40 days, 
and he may have started well after the forces arrived. It must have been in the season between planting and harvesting, as I couldn't imagine this thing dragging on like it did when the crops needed tending. Maybe it was as recorded when David was king. It was in the spring when kings march off to war. In this part of the first book of Samuel, David was still young and spending most of his time around his father's house tending to the family's flock, all while his older brothers are on the front, joined by thousands of their countrymen, engaged in the protracted standoff with the Philistines. David's dad Jesse asked his youngest to carry a bunch of food to the battlefield for his older brothers, and he dutifully complies. He also takes some cheese for their commanding officer. David shows up to find the Israelite forces lining up for battle, crying out their battle cries, probably putting on their best war faces. On the other side of the valley, the Philistine forces were doing the same, each trying to intimidate the other, as armies and warriors often do. We're to presume this was the same as it had been for the past 40 or so days, each not really getting ready to attack the other, but both assuming a more defensive posture, just in case the other side tried something new, like a surprise attack. When he arrived, David left the supplies he had brought with someone the text calls the keeper of the baggage, at least in the New Revised Standard. The King James calls him the keeper of the carriage, and the NIV the keeper of supplies. We would call this position a quartermaster, one compound word replacing three or four. After dropping the provisions with the quartermaster, he ran to the front and found his brothers. He would stand there, talking with his brothers and whoever else was nearby. Embedded in this is an observation, which is purely my own. Despite the enemy forces being amassed and facing off across the valley, no one was overly concerned about the other, as they allowed this young boy to come up and have a chat. My first thought was they were far enough apart that even if the other side did begin a charge, it would take at least several minutes to cover the distance and get close enough that spears and arrows would become effective. But this thought was put to rest with what happened next. As David stood there, conversing with his brethren, Goliath appeared, again, getting close enough that he would yell his taunts at his enemies. And think about that. He and his shield-bearer walked into no man's land and got close enough that David, standing there with his brothers, could hear him. It seems the forces weren't some great distance apart, with a wide valley separating them. They were rather close to the other, within shouting distance. Of course, David, along with the rest of the Israelites within earshot, hears him. The assembled Israelites, at least those standing near David, ask, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. The king will greatly enrich the man who kills him, and will give him his daughter, and will make his family free in Israel. There's so much to unpack in there, and I'll get to it in a future episode. One thing, though, is do notice, and the presumption is the offer is quite literal, that the king will give his daughter to whoever shuts this giant up, permanently, even if the man who does it is a slave. 
Remember that when someone says they want to be treated like a princess, to be given to just whoever. David hears the Philistine and asks his brothers what the oversized egoed warrior was up to. Specifically, he said, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Those who are around David repeat what they said earlier. The king will reward that soldier handsomely. Then human nature and family dynamics kick in. David's older brother, Eliab, heard him talking with the other soldiers, gets angry, and potentially jealous. Remember, it was only a chapter earlier that David was anointed by Samuel as the next king of Israel, and Samuel did this in front of David's brothers. My mind goes back to the jealousy of Joseph's brothers. Such dynamics were not only present then, but formed so much of family strife even through today. Eliab speaks up. Why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil in your heart, for you have come down just to see the battle. And David responds in a way not foreign to the manner someone would today. What have I done now? It was only a question. And David ignored his brother and kept chatting with the soldiers around him. David's words eventually make it to the king, and the king has David brought to him. When David shows up, and though it's not mentioned in the text, I'm sure David remembered playing his lyre for the monarch sometime before. Likely, Saul remembered that encounter too. Then the two, David and the king, have an oft-repeated exchange. David tells Saul, Let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go up and fight with this Philistine. Saul replies, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are just a boy, and he has been a warrior from his youth. This seems to indicate that the Philistines had a professional army that began training warriors at an early age. David replies, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord, who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul tells David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. And I'm going to pause the story for a second to put a pin in something. The bear was likely what we call a Syrian brown bear, native to the region. As far as brown bears go, they're a bit on the small side. But everything is relative, as they can weigh up to 550 pounds, 250 kilograms. Given that size, why would I say they are small? Well, the North American cousin is the grizzly, and those brown bears can weigh up to 790 pounds, 360 kilos. Everything is relative. Another thing to keep in mind, a full-grown Syrian brown would likely have been larger than Goliath and had no issue dispatching him assuming no weapons were used. 
As for the lion, and I've mentioned this before, but there are currently no native lions in the Middle East. At the time, though, well, up until maybe as late as 1960, there were Barbary lions that inhabited parts of North Africa and the Middle East. These cats were up to 9 feet, nearly 3 meters long, and weighed as much as 660 pounds, 300 kilograms. As a natural apex predator, an adult could easily take on a weaponless Philistine giant. Assuming David's stories were literally true and not subject to any puffery, despite being a young lad, he certainly had the courage to face a professional warrior. What happened next will have to wait until next week, as I'm once again out of time. Join me then when I'll press forward with the history of the Philistines. You don't want to miss it. Before signing off, one quick correction. A couple of episodes ago, when covering Samson's interactions with his wife, I mentioned how he put his parents before his wife and failed to practice what I call leaving and cleaving. In the process, I quoted Matthew, who quoted Jesus, who said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. All of that is correct. The part that needs correcting is that I called it a New Testament concept. One of my astute listeners pointed out that Jesus was actually quoting Genesis 2, which reads, Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. When I say I know I have smart listeners, I mean it. Unfortunately, I didn't get permission to use the listener's name. But you know who you are, and your note was much appreciated. Comments and questions and corrections can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast is three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.